0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Well, guys, this is it. This is the last week in uh, the Genesis series. It's hard to believe it's over. We've covered, well, we will we'll have covered 50 chapters over two semesters. Um, and I'll tell you a little bit more about what's coming up next. But the first thing I need you to do this morning is, is help us out. There is on your table, that table tent, and on one side there is a QR code. It's a different QR code than normal. Normally, that's for you to make donations for the food. And maybe you didn't know that's what that's there for, but that's what that's there for. This time, it's a survey. So I I want you to uh, get out your phones and just take a picture of that little QR code, and it's going to take you to a short 10-question survey we would like you to do right now. Because I know if you don't do it now, you won't do it. Uh, So we're going to take a few minutes, and while you're doing that, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's going to be coming up uh, for the rest of the, the year. We've covered some of this, but I just want to remind you that we're going to be done today, and then we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back in April, April 27th, and we're going to do what we call Focal Point. We do it every year in April, and it's a one-off. It's We bring in a guest speaker to deal with a hot-button topic, and the hot-button topic this year is going to be the whole gender identity issue that's going on, and, and really the attack on manhood. And so we've, we're asking, uh, we've invited a gentleman to come in, Brant Hansen. he's gonna come in and he's gonna deal with the topic, what is a man? But really, what is a godly man? What does a biblical man look like? Biblical manhood, so it'll uh, be at the Fort Worth campus, we could only get him that one night, it's a Thursday night, uh, we're gonna serve food, it's a great place to invite your friends who've maybe never come to Bible study, and uh, get them exposed to what Band of Brothers is all about. And so that's going to be in April. Then in summer, we're going to come back the week of May the 8th, and we're going to do the godly man's picture. We're going to pick up where Brant left off, and we're going to do a six-week series at all campuses, just like we normally do, on six different biblical characters who either exhibit godliness or don't, and just unpack their lives as to what does biblical godliness look like. And so that'll take us through the summer. And then in uh, August, we're taking 20 men to Brazil. Now we have a planning meeting or an informational meeting coming up. It's our second one, uh, this Wednesday night at the Fort Worth campus at seven o'clock. If you are interested, want to know more about this trip to Brazil, come to that meeting and we'll tell you everything you need to know. Um, We're about half, half of our spots are taken. We're only taking 20 guys. So if you've ever wanted to go on a mission trip, this is a great one to go on. It's all guys. It's, it's a, kind of a low-hanging fruit, easy trip to go on, but it's, it's an incredible experience. So just to let you know about that. And then finally, we're going to come back in the fall, and we're going to pick up where we leave off this morning, and we're going to do the book of Exodus. So that's kind of the, the direction we're going for the summer and then into the fall, and I'm looking forward to doing Exodus. So Um, but I need you to do that survey. Uh, This is really not you assessing us, it's you assessing you. Um, How have you grown during this last semester? What has God done in your life? So if you wouldn't mind, just take that short little survey. You can be doing it uh, while I start, but uh, that will help us out tremendously. Well, let me pray for us, and we're going to get into the last two chapters of the book of Genesis. Genesis. Well, Father, we come to you this morning, and as always, we're grateful for this opportunity to study your word together, and Lord, I thank you that you, through the the power of the Holy Spirit, you prompted, you guided Moses to write the five books of the Pentateuch, and especially this first book, the book of Genesis, and that, Father, we have it, and we're able to read it, and we're able to study it, and learn from it, and, and see you, and I pray that as we wrap it up this morning, that it would not be closure. It would be really just the beginning of understanding who you are and what you're doing in our world and how you've got this incredible plan of redemption that is far from over. And they're working it, and you're working it to perfection, and we get to be a part of that process. So, Father, we thank you, and we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up. Last two chapters, chapter 49 and chapter 50, and uh, it's really this morning, our goal is to bring the book to a close, but um, we have to remember that this book, Genesis, is one of five books that were initially one book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, written by Moses, and written, as we've said, over and over again, repeatedly, uh, for a particular group of people. The Israelites, who were getting ready to go into the land of promise. Moses, under the guidance, and the direction of the Holy Spirit, penned these books so that they would understand who their God is. Um, and, th- and that's one of the reasons I want to study Exodus, is that you have to understand that these people, the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, after 400 years living in Egypt, have forgotten God. they They've long ago forgotten the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, When he appears on the scene, he's going to reintroduce himself to these people so that they can come to know who he really is. That's why Moses takes the time, the effort, the energy to write down all of these things for these people so that they could understand the greatness of the God who's called them out of captivity into freedom. So it's a plan, right? It's a plan of God. God's plan has been working from the beginning, the literal beginning, which is how we started this. A semester ago looking at the opening chapters of the book of of Exodus or book of Genesis this redemptive plan of God didn't start with Jesus you know we, we always on this side of the cross we always we start with Jesus now Jesus is critical don't get me wrong he's key but it began before the foundation of the world it began before the Sun the moon the stars the plan was already in place then and all we're seeing in the book of Genesis is this plan manifesting itself, working itself out. And we saw when we studied chapter one, that it began with darkness. It began with confusion. When God made the earth, it was formless and void, we're told. But we also know that God knew exactly what he was doing. He made it a certain way. There was a certain sequence. Things took place in order because God's a God of order. There's nothing done haphazardly. There's nothing done that's a mistake and then he has to fix it. This is a plan and it's a perfect plan. So how did it open up in Genesis chapter one? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. That's almost a foreboding kind of a, a statement about the condition of the world. It was not yet complete. It's a process of creation that we looked at in chapters one, two, and three of Genesis. Because it goes on and says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's it's as if Moses is trying to convey this anticipatory idea that God is about to do something incredible. He's, He's begun the creation process, but he's not yet done. Now, when we end this morning We know God's not yet done, right? He's not done with the Israelites. He's not done with the famine. He's not done with Joseph. And he's not done with the redemptive plan. It's going to continue. That's, again, why we want to study the next book in the sequence. So God made this planet. There's no other planet like in in the universe. I I firmly believe we will never find another earth. I don't think God made two earths or 12 earths, and they're just scattered around, and they have some kind of living organism. I don't believe that's the case because this is about a unique situation. One of a kind, one in time, and it's this planet. And on that planet, he placed a garden, right? That's what chapter two talked about. He, he, he made this an idyllic place, and then he puts this guy there, this guy named Adam that he created out of dirt. He puts this man in that garden on a specific place, in a specific region on this earth, And it's the only only place where this could happen. And then what happens? Well, it says, the Lord God formed that man out of the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Everything about the story of creation is about God specifically acting in time with real people in a real place, and we know that place because we live here. Now, we don't live in Eden, right? I I love where I live, but it's not Eden. Um, It's not perfect. I spent all day yesterday working in the yard, and I've got more weeds than I've got grass. It's not a perfect place, but we understand that this is unique. And in that place, that garden, he puts this man. And then he gives him a mate, right? He takes the rib from his side, and yes, I believe that really happened. I don't know how God did it. I don't know why God did it that way, but God created for him a mate, and then he gives him a mandate. And this mandate is incredibly important for us to understand, because this mandate still holds true today. And we looked at this in great detail last semester. What's the mandate? He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves in the earth. What does he tell Adam and Eve to do? Get busy make more like you, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Don't just remain the two of you. This was not about Adam and Eve spending the rest of eternity with God, just the two of them. No, it was about them following this mandate and filling the earth with more of them, more human beings. They were to make more of their kind, right? And when Adam and Eve came together, they were successful. They made more of their kind. It says, God created man, in his own image. And and I have a, a little bit different take on this. If you were here last semester, you heard this take, and not everybody agrees with it, and that's okay. But I believe that when God made Adam and Eve, they were made in his image. They were to reflect his likeness, creative ability, thinking capacity, a will. They could mirror God, so to speak. And he made them that way. And he made them perfectly. Um, They were without sin when he made them. But then we know what happened. Something happened. Sin came into the world. And and that's what set the whole story rolling in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed the will of God, the word of God, and did what they wanted to do. And what happens is they start making more of their own and more of their kind, but it's not exactly the kind that God made. In other words, when God made them, they were perfect. But when they sinned, they became imperfect. They became flawed. And every time they created one of their kind, one of their kind came out what? Flawed, imperfect, sinful. And we see it early on in the story. See, the image bearers became rule breakers. And, and I believe every human being comes out of the womb, an image bearer in some capacity, but we're now a flawed image bearer. It's like a mirror with a crack in it. We, we can't effectively mirror the image of God anymore because of sin. And the only way that changes is through a relationship with Christ. He, he restores the capacity to mirror God, to be Christ-like, to be God-like. See, it says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat. That was the, the order. That was the command. You can have everything I've made. You can eat of any tree in this garden, but just not that one. And we we talked about this. Guys, you see it in your kids, right? We kept two of our grandkids for five days just recently, and it's, it's like everything I told them not to do is what they wanted to do. And I found out later that, you know, some of my Kids spank their children, and some don't. Well, this daughter doesn't. And so she asked us how it went. I said, hey, it went great. 80% of it was fun. 20% of it was not so fun. I probably have spanked more the last five days, and I've spanked in a long time. She went, what? I said, yeah, yeah, we, we, we spanked. And she goes, we don't spank. I said, well, we do. I said, hey, this is my house. You, you come in my rules, and... and uh." We worked it out. Uh, I don't know that we'll be keeping her kids anytime soon. Um, But that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, But I guarantee her two little boys, five and three, wanted to do what they wanted to do. And whatever I told them, don't do. Don't touch that. They touched it. Don't do that again. They did it again. Why? Because they're sinful. They have a sin nature. They come out of the womb with a sin nature. So Adam and Eve were made perfect, but in their case, They had a choice. They could obey God and live in perfect union with him, or they could eat of that tree, and what did they do? They ate of the tree. Eve saw the fruit. It was delightful, and what? She eats it. She desires it because the serpent said, it'll make you wise. You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil, right from wrong. You'll be self-determining. You'll be able to decide what's good for you, bad for you. You don't need God. You'll be God. That's basically what he told them. And she bought into it. She ate the fruit. She gave some to her husband. And that starts the whole process of sin entering into the world. So what happens? They get cast out of the garden. They're banned from God's presence. We know the story. But this is important for us to understand is we end the book. It's tied directly to the beginning of the book, right? You, you can't just take that as one section and then discard it and then Okay, here's how the story ends. No, it's a continuation of the same story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's the same story living itself out because it's all part of God's plan. So here's what we know. They multiplied. Adam and Eve got busy. They obeyed the mandate. They made more of their own. But the problem is the kind that they made was not what God was looking for, right? They were made in the image of God, but now their image is flawed, and they start having children. Those children come out flawed, and it says that when Adam and Eve had children, they came out in his likeness. They were like him, not God. They didn't reflect God so much as they reflected Adam, the flawed Adam, the sinful Adam. And it says later on in chapter 6 of Genesis, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were evil continually. See, this is important because when you think about the Israelites, and we've been studying about the Israelites, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those 70 people and Jacob's family that have moved into Egypt. Well, they're part of this sinful progeny of Adam and Eve. They come from the same tree. They've got the same problem you and I have. They have a sin problem. But it's interesting that in the book of Genesis, we're told that this is the case in chapter 6. Everybody's doing evil, but there's one guy, this guy Noah, who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One man. And this begins a process whereby God is going to reboot the whole system. It's the royal reboot number one. He's going to take One man, Noah, who we're told is a righteous man, doesn't mean he's a sinless man, doesn't mean he's a perfect man, but compared to everybody else around him who are evil and can only think to do evil continually, one guy God picks out and he says, through you, I'm going to start over. I'm going to reboot this whole system. I'm going to destroy every human being on the planet except you, your wife, your three sons, and their wives. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start over. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to take this one righteous man. And that's a sad statement, right, that in all these years since Adam and Eve, there's one righteous man on the face of the earth. Um, that's sad. I, I don't know where you are in your relationship with God, but I'm going to hope that you're a righteous man, that if you're in Christ, you are a righteous man. You have his righteousness. So there's a whole lot of us in here. There was one at this point in history, one righteous man. And when he redeems him, when he saves him from the flood that he brought on the world, he gives Adam or gives Noah the same mandate. He says, blessed bless be Noah, his sons. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Same mandate, but we're going to have a similar result. This part of the story is so fascinating to me because he starts with Noah, a righteous man, And immediately, everybody else is wiped off the face of the earth, right? Clean slate, new guy, and it all goes south again. Why? Because Noah is righteous, but again, he's not perfect. And he's going to produce more of the same kind that Adam and Eve did. He's going to produce more sinful people. And it doesn't take long for that to pan out. Chapter 10 These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. From Noah comes everybody. I don't care where you were born, I don't care what ethnicity you are, your ancestry doesn't matter, you eventually come from Noah. We all come from Noah, or his three sons. That's where we come from, with a direct link back to who? Adam and Eve. So... this is what happens. He starts over, Noah, his three sons, their wives, and we get everybody who lives on the face of the earth. And they all spread abroad, which is part of the mandate, fill the earth. But we still have a problem. We have that sin problem. We saw in the story of Babel that God said, spread across all the earth, but they decide we want to stay in Babel. We want to congregate. We want to have a community. We want to build a tower to the heavens, and we want to be like God. We don't want to listen to God. We want to be God. And God has to confuse their languages, and he spreads them out all over the earth. See, these these are fanciful stories that some people write off as just myths. I believe them to be true because they're part of the word of God. And this is God's plan. This is what he's always had in mind. He wasn't surprised by Babel. He wasn't surprised by Adam and Eve's sin. He's not surprised by anything because he knows what's going to happen before it happens. And so this is all part of the plan. And what happens is they spread all over the earth again. And here's where it begins to tie in with where we are. They spread to a place called Ur. Remember, they come from Noah. It's the royal reboot. A bunch of them end up in Mesopotamia over to the east, and one person who ends up there is a guy named Abram. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred. In Ur of the Chaldeans, and Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. A huge portion of the book of Genesis, as we've seen, is this guy, Abram. And what's so fascinating about the story is that Abram, Abraham, as he comes to be known, is from the lineage of Noah. He's a pagan. He lives in Ur of the Chaldees, and God chooses him. It's the royal reboot number two. Now, God's not going to kill everybody this time, but he's going to choose this obscure pagan who lives in Ur the Chaldees where people have moved because God's confused their language and he's going to pick that guy, a pagan. There are so many believers who don't understand this about Abraham. We think of Abraham as the patriarch, the father of the Hebrew people, and he is. But the Hebrew people at the point in this story don't even exist. There is no nation of the Hebrews he is a Chaldean. God is going to make a nation. That's what's so ni- so significant about this story. And he's going to do it through a 75-year-old Chaldean, a worshiper of false gods. Is that how you would do it if you were God? I wouldn't. But see, God does things differently than we would do things. And so he's going to take this man who's got a barren wife, now, now, did God miss that point? Did God go, okay, I'm going to choose you, and then, oh, my gosh, your wife's barren. No, he knew she was barren. That's kind of baked into the cake is that a pagan 75-year-old with a barren wife, that's how I'm going to start all over. Oh, okay, God, you're God. You know, you must know what you're doing. Well, he did. And then he promises, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you offspring." See, this is this is part of the whole story, right? That we just skim past so often, and we don't connect the dots and understand that everything we've just studied over the last what twelve weeks has been about God continuing to work this plan—a land, an offspring. He says to him, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And we looked at this last week. he's, He's blessing Pharaoh through Joseph, one of the descendants of Abram. God is already working this plan out. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to make of you a great nation, a 75-year-old pagan with a barren wife. And ultimately what? God is going to fulfill the mandate. And here's what I love about this portion of the story is that the mandate remains the same, be fruitful, multiply. But in this case, God now says, I will make you into a great nation. There's, There's a significant difference between be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and in other words, become a great nation or nations, And this one, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to create from you a great nation. And we know that Abram will ultimately multiply. Now, he's going to have problems with it, right? For decades, he and his wife can't have children. They finally do a workaround, and they have Ishmael by Hagar, the handmaiden. Well, that's not God's plan. They finally get Isaac. But he doesn't have a nation. He doesn't have a multitude. He doesn't have a lot. But God will ultimately fulfill this promise. And again, if we don't look at these stories in sequence, if we don't keep them hooked together, they don't make sense. He's going to tell them, you will have descendants who will live in a land of promise. It's the land he arrived in when he left Ur, where God sent him. This is going to be yours. He never owned any property there except a place to bury his wife. He never had a home there. He never lived in a city. He lived in tents. But see, God is fulfilling his promise over time. And we've talked about this a lot, guys, how how you and I don't like to wait for the promises of God. I want them now and I want them according to my terms. I want to know what the blessings are according to my definition, not God's definition. I want the promises now, not later. And yet we see in Hebrews chapter 11 over and over again, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, they waited and waited, never receiving the promise, but believing in the God who made the promise. And the promises finally came, just not in their lifetimes. So he says to Abram, I'm going to give to your offspring this land. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and he never saw it happen. And he eventually died. But what do we know? Because we're on the other end of the cross, and we we understand the whole story. We, We know that it eventually will happen, but he didn't. And those promises get passed down from one generation to another. Eventually, they end up with Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah. God says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. Abraham dies, Isaac gets the promises passed down to him from God, and he says the same thing. This is going to all be yours. Did he ever have it all? No. Isaac's going to have the same problem. He'll never own any proper, property. He'll never live in a city. He'll never have a home of his own. He lives in a tent. All of his life, he's a nomad, but yet what did God say? It's all going to be yours. It's interesting that God gets specific with Isaac, and he says, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land which I shall tell you. You may have never noticed this before, but with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, father, son, grandson, each of them encounter a famine. And we've looked at them, right? Abraham encountered a famine in the land of Canaan, when he first gets to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, the first thing he discovers is it's going through a famine, which had to make him go, okay, I've moved all the way from Ur to Haran down to here, and it's a stinking famine. I don't know if you know that, but Ur's in the fertile crescent. And he left that for this, and what did he do? He ran to Egypt. He escaped the famine, and he went to Egypt. We just read a story about that, right? Jacob did the same thing. But just like he ran to Egypt, Isaac's going to encounter a famine, and he's going to think about running to Egypt. We, we get to the story of Isaac, and he faces a famine in the land too. Here's why this is so important. God lets Abram get to the land. There's a famine. Isaac comes along, there's a famine. Jacob comes along, there's a famine. There seems to be a pattern here. And I think the pattern is not just the famine, but Egypt. They're tied together because in every case, Egypt is tied to the famine in Canaan, the land of promise. Which makes me realize that God has always had a plan for Egypt. It's always been part of the story. It's always been part of God's plan, but here's what happens. We try to fast forward God's plan. We try to give our spin on God's plan, and that's what we see in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it involves this place called Egypt. Egypt is so significant in the history of the people of Israel. Those promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob all get passed down ultimately to Jacob. And here's what God says to him. I'm God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. There's that mandate again, right? Fill the earth. Make more of your kind. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Isn't it fascinating that God says, I gave it to your father and your grandfather? Well, I read it and go, No, you didn't. They never owned any of it. Well, see, from God's perspective, it was theirs. There were other people living there. There were other people living in the cities and occupying the land and and grazing their sheep and cattle on that land. But from God's perspective, it, it was always theirs. And he says, I'm gonna give it to you as well. But we know it's the same story all over again. He never really owned any of it. And then there's this famine. Why does God keep bringing famines? If it's the land of fruitfulness... It's compared to Eden in the scriptures, it's, it's like a garden, the garden of Eden, and yet why are all these famines? Well, what does he say to Jacob? Again, third time's a charm, another famine in the land, but he says, I'm God, the God of your father, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Mitchell talked about this last week, and I just have to drive it home. What does he say to him? There. I will make of you a great nation. Where? Egypt. Now, you may not see that as important. You may think, "Oh, okay, well, that's fine. What have they all been thinking all along ever since Abram left Ur? It's all going to happen in Canaan. That's the place of fruitfulness. That's the place where we'll become a great nation. No, it's going to be in Egypt. Egypt has always been part of the plan. they've got to get down to Egypt. But because men are sinful and because men always want to help God out with his plan, we want to either fast forward or alter God's plan in some way to make it more palatable to us. See, Abraham in his story, when the famine hit, he left. He ran to Egypt. He went too soon. God never told him to go. Nowhere in the text does it say God sought the will of, or Moses sought the will of God, and God said, hey, I want you to go down to Egypt. I've sent a famine in the land of Canaan, so you can go down to Egypt. He went of his own accord. He was autonomous. He, he acted as God, and he said, I think it'll be better for me down there. And you know the story. He went, he told his wife, tell everybody you meet that you're my sister, so they won't kill me. And then Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem, and then God has to rescue her. See, he went too soon. He risked the fruitfulness of Sarah. Well, we see the same thing happen with Isaac. When the, that famine comes into the land, God says, don't follow your father's pattern. Don't go down to Egypt. So he goes, okay, I'm going to run to a place called Gerar. And there he risked Rebekah's fruitfulness. Remember, he does the same thing. He goes to a different place. He does go to Egypt But he runs and then he basically tells the king there, she's my sister. And he attempts to take her. And then God says, you better not do that. And both men tried to help God out. Each man tried to work God's plan a little bit differently. See, Egypt has always been part of the plan. We see Egypt as an anomaly. We see Egypt as, gosh, it sucks to be a Hebrew you got to go spend 400 years in in Egypt. No, that's always been the plan of God. And here's what I need you to think about, and it's actually going to be one of your questions. There are Egypts in your life. There are times, seasons that God plans for you that are not appealing to you. And you hate them, and you despise them, and you want out of them, and you try to pray your way out of them, and you try to finagle your way out of them, but they're the Egypt for your life. I have them in your, my life, you have them in your life, and you can look back in hindsight and see them. But when you're in the midst of them, you go, I don't like this. I don't want to be here. But see, it's in Egypt that they're going to be made fruitful. It's in Egypt they're going to become a nation. It's through trials, it's through tribulations that we want out of that God makes us into the men he wants us to be. I'm not saying you're going to have fun in them. I'm not saying it's going to be joyful all the time, but if you truly believe God is sovereign, there's a a way in which we need to begin to embrace the Egypts of our life and realize that God has a plan and he's working that plan. See, with Sarah and Rebecca, during those times of famine, when Abraham fled, he risked the fruitfulness of Sarah. And Sarah was huge to the story, right? She was the one who was going to bear Isaac. Same thing with Rebecca. When Isaac went down to Gerar and and had her lie about being his sister, he risked her fruitfulness. She's critical. Sarah bears Isaac, the, the son of the promise, right? He had to be born for all the promises to be fulfilled. Rebekah bore Jacob, who gets his name changed to what? Israel. Both of these men were critical, and by fleeing to either Egypt, too soon, or down to Gerar instead, risked the fruitfulness that God had planned for the people of Israel. Because if these two guys don't get born, guess what? There's no Messiah. There's, there's no salvation. This building doesn't exist. We don't worship him. You know The whole story changes because of what Abraham and Isaac almost did. We looked at this, and it still applies. The name Jacob literally means, "Let God rule." Let God rule. Let God do what only God can do. Quit trying to play God. And the whole book of Genesis is about that: letting God rule. From beginning to end, chapter one, all the way to chapter 50. But what's the conflict? And we've seen it over and over again. God's sovereignty over man's autonomy. It began with the fall, chapter three. What did, what did Satan say? Hey, God didn't want you to hear that fruit because if you do, you'll be like him. You'll be as God, knowing good from evil, right from wrong. You'll get to be self autonomous. You'll get to decide what's best for you. Eat of it, and she does. And immediately her eyes are opened, and she knows right from wrong, good from evil. All that simply means is she now knows how to sin. And she knows I now have the choice to sin. I can sin anytime I want, and we've been doing it ever since. So this thing of God's sovereignty and man's autonomy is all throughout the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way to Revelation. It's, it's the problem. God created Israel that they might exhibit what it means to let God rule. That's important for us to understand. He made a nation out of a pagan from Ur of the Chaldees, the Hebrew people, so that they might show what it means to let God rule. It's the reason he gave them the Ten Commandments. He was very specific. It's not just you, you have a relationship with me, but I'm going to show you exactly what it looks like to live under my rule and according to my terms, and you will mirror it to the nations. You, you will reflect my will, my way to the nations. So all of that leads us to this, chapter 49. Look at what happens. Jacob calls his sons, and he says, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Chapter 49 is a fascinating chapter. It's a a very complex chapter, and we're only going to dip our toe into it. In it, he blesses his sons, his 12 sons. He's old, he's about to die, and so he's going to bring in all of his sons, and he's going to bless them. Where are they? Egypt. They're living now in the land. We covered that last week. And now he knows that his days are numbered, and he's got to bestow the blessings upon his sons but he says something specific I'm going to show you things to happen in the days to come what's significant is these are not just blessings of a father to his sons these are prophetic words from God God is speaking through this man to his sons about their future not just their future but the tribes who will come for these men, the future of their descendants. Because he knows, Jacob knows that God's not yet done. What has God told him? When he left to go to Egypt, God said, don't be afraid. Go because there I'm gonna make of you a great nation and I'm gonna return them to the land. What land? The land of promise. So he's gonna reveal the future. And there's so much speculation about what all of these different blessings mean. And, and again, we could, we could literally spend weeks just covering these blessings of Jacob to his sons. But here's, here's what you need to understand. He's basically saying, you're going to go back to Canaan. Now, they never will go back to Canaan. None of those 12 sons, including Joseph, will ever set foot in Canaan. Well, they will to bury their dad, but then they'll go home to Egypt their descendants will end up in Canaan. See, this is long-term. This is playing the long game. We play the short game, right? We, we want to play what we can see. We, we want to know tomorrow. We don't really care about eternity when we should care about eternity and quit worrying about tomorrow. And so he's going to tell them what's going to happen. And he wants to cultivate their faith and he wants to produce seed. That's what Canaan is going to be for cultivating faith. See, Canaan, where Abram lived, was the place to learn faith. God sent him there, famine, you got to have faith, trust me. Barren wife, you got to have faith, trust me. Enemies, you got to have faith, trust me. It's all about faith. That's why in Hebrews, it over and over again says, those people living in Canaan before they go to Egypt, We're learning to live by faith. By faith, Abram lived in the land of promise. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, by faith, by faith. See, Canaan had been a place to learn to live by faith, trust me, rely on me, rest in me, and produce seed. And there's a difference between seed in this context and a multitude of offspring. See, there were really only two that needed to be born for this thing to work. Isaac and then Jacob. So what happens? Sarah conceived and bore Abraham, a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken, and calls him Isaac. She's barren. She's old. They've waited and waited, and at just the right time, God opens her womb, and she's able to bear a son named Isaac, because that's part of God's plan. It's the place where seed was going to be born. How about Rebecca? Rebecca's days to come, to give birth come, and she has twins, and those twins are born, and the second one, the younger one, is called Jacob. Again, if these two men are not born, the story ends right here. There is no Exodus. There is no Deuteronomy. There is no Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is no Jesus. That's why this is so important. It's all part of God's plan. So it's a place to cultivate faith. It was a place to bear seed because those seed would be critical. See, Egypt is different. Egypt is a place to bear fruit and form a nation. That's why when when I encountered the Egypts in my life, I, I resist them like the plague. I don't want it. I don't just get rid of it. I try to pray my way out of it. I try to run away from it. And I don't realize that this is really where God's going to produce the most fruit in your life. And I can look back in hindsight and I see over and over again, man, that's when I grow, grew the most. That's when I prayed the most. That's when I, my faith grew the most. Bearing fruit. What happens? We know from Exodus chapter one. When Jacob's family finally leaves, they're going to have grown from 70 to a multitude. Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and they filled the land. Potentially anywhere from one to two million of them existed when they left Egypt. Well, that's a nation, right? God fulfilled his promise. We've used this term a lot because it's critical to the story of Genesis. This Hebrew word goy means a nation. Jacob and his clan of 70 became a nation. They weren't a nation when they got there, but when they left, they were. God fulfilled his promise, but he did it in Egypt from 70 to literally millions. Egypt was an incubator. Heat that they didn't enjoy, pressure that they didn't enjoy, but it was all to benefit them, to make them fruitful, to turn them into that nation that God had promised all along. What if they had never gone to Egypt? What if Jacob had said, I don't want to go there. I'm going to stay in Canaan. Again, the story ends right there. But that wasn't God's plan. Jacob is going to give this divine glimpse of the future to his sons, so he gets them together, and he says, hey, listen. I love how it says, oh, sons of Jacob, come around, gather around, listen to Israel, your father. Why does he use both his names? Because they know him as Jacob, their dad, but he wants them to know, I'm really Israel, let God rule. I, I, I want to talk to you as Israel, not Jacob. Because I want you to let God rule. That's really what these blessings are all about, is you need to let God rule. And God is going to rule whether you like it or not. So he's going to predict for them justice, grace, and mercy. And you can go back and look at these in detail, and you'll see it over and over again. Justice, grace, and mercy. Some are going to get what they deserve. They're all going to get grace, but they're all going to get mercy. Because God's not yet done. Every one of these men... Will receive something from God but through their descendants. That, that's huge in this story. They're all going to die in Egypt, but God is going to deliver these things through their heirs. They'll either get burden or blessing, all based on what their, these men did. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Joseph, what they did in their lives will affect their offspring. Think about that. What you do does have implications. Your sins do have ramifications. They, they have a life to them, and they do affect your offspring. I think it's amazing, not amazing, it's revealing to me that I got exposed to hardcore pornography in the third grade, and I struggled with it for years, all the way into college. And both of my sons, very early on, got exposed to pornography and struggled with it. I don't think that's happenstance. I don't think that's just, well, that's kind of weird. No, the sins of the fathers do get visited down on the future generations, and we're going to see that in spades in these blessings. So we're going to move through them real quickly. Reuben. Reuben's the one that's going to forfeit the blessing of the firstborn because he raped Bilhah, his father's concubine. Now, he's gonna die in Egypt, but his descendants are gonna be impacted. The blessing goes from him to Joseph's two sons. It skips over him, and it's gonna have ramifications. His descendants are gonna be unstable just like he was. And you can go back and read the the history of the Israelites. You're gonna see over and over again, the Reubenites were unstable people. How about this one? Simeon and Levi, we know what they did. They're the ones who, avenged the rape of their daughter by Shechem and wiped out everybody in the community. And because of that, they're going to be penalized. Not just them, but their descendants. Their descendants would receive just a few cities within the land of Judah. They don't even get their own land. They're going to be penalized. It's interesting, though, that God shows grace on the Levites. And the Levites get no land, but they get to serve God. I love how God can mete out justice and mercy and grace all together. He didn't wipe them out. He doesn't kill them. He just alters the future for them. How about Judah? Judah's the tribe that will play a pivotal role in the leadership of Israel. Remember, he stepped up at the end, and he stood in the place of Benjamin and said, I will take his place. I will become a slave on his behalf, and he's rewarded for that. From his tribe will come future kings, including David, and ultimately, King Jesus. See, Jacob doesn't understand everything he's saying, I don't believe, but he's prophesying over these men and saying, your descendants are going to be blessed by God. How about Zebulun? His tribe will be given prime land located on a major trading route. We don't know why. We don't know exactly how this happens, but it does, and they're going to prosper through shipping and through commerce, and God's going to bless them richly. How about Issachar? His tribe later inherits rich farmland in the Jezreel Valley near Galilee. And this is going to be the place where Jesus spends most of his time. Dan, see, we know nothing about most of these tribes other than what we're told in these passages. We know of Dan that Samson's going to be one of the greatest judges to come from this particular tribe, both good and bad. He's a great judge. He was also an evil judge in many ways. Many of their leaders are idolatrous and incur the judgment of God. See, all of these tribes, in one way or the other, are going to get the justice of God, the blessing of God, the grace of God, and the mercy of God. Gad, this tribe produced a great number of warriors, and many of them become the mighty men of David. They fought alongside King David. Asher, his tribe inherits the fertile land of Carmel. Naphtali, they inherit a land along the Sea of Galilee, and this is the place where Jesus Christ began his earthly ministry and really had his headquarters. Here's what I need you to understand. We're not going into great detail, but every one of these men got a blessing. Some of the blessings were negative. Some of the blessings were positive. But every one of them received a blessing, including Joseph. He gets a double portion What Reuben sacrificed by what he did goes to the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh of Joseph. And they're going to be a major source and a major player in the northern kingdom when the two nations split. See, God is, he's got a plan and he's working that plan. And for some reason he's allowing Jacob to prophetically speak over his sons the future. And then finally, Benjamin, his tribe would produce warriors And they're the ones who formed the southern tribe of Judah, Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdom. Why is this important? Because what jumps out at me is that none of the 12 men get left out. They all get blessings. It says, these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them. And he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable right for him. And again, some of the blessings are not necessarily blessings. When I read them, they sound more like curses, but God is going to use these men in spite of them. That's what blows me away. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, God's going to use all 12 men, and they're all going to get land in, in Canaan, not in Egypt. No one gets left out. They're all extended grace and mercy. They're all going to be used. They're all going to become fruitful. And here's what's amazing. If you you go look at Deuteronomy, it it gives us this list that, look at this. This is how many fighting men were part of the nation of Israel when they got ready to go into the land. It adds up to over 600,000 men of fighting age. Doesn't include women. Doesn't include children. Doesn't include Teens doesn't include the elderly, it's just those of fighting age. That's why we think that there were literally one to two million Israelites. They're all fruitful, right? They all end up in the land, they all become fruitful, but they were made fruitful in Egypt. And this is the land they get. Every one of them, God's promise gets fulfilled in full. Well, what happens? He blesses them, and then he dies. It's almost like he he gets the words out of his mouth and he croaks. You know, just perfect timing. I don't think that's what happened, but shortly after blessing them, he dies and he's gathered to his people. He breathes his last. It's the end, the death of Jacob, but it's not the end of the story, right? What's interesting is that Joseph has his body embalmed and it says that the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. That's pretty amazing, right? That, That they're mourning this father of Joseph? That's something they reserved for Pharaoh. Typically in Egypt, you you mourn the death of a Pharaoh for 75 days. It's like they cut five days off. But they mourn this guy's death, and then they're going to accompany the funeral procession all the way to Canaan. Dignitaries from Egypt went all the way to Canaan, and they bury him, but they all return to Egypt. I've never really Looked at this, noticed this, that they did leave. They did go back to the land to bury their dad. And they could have stayed, right? But that would have been a mistake because there's still a famine. So they go back to Egypt, which is what God wanted them to do because he wasn't done yet. And I love this little aside that that Moses gives us is that when they get back to Egypt, all the brothers, they all return They saw that their father was dead. That doesn't mean that they just noticed. I mean, they they just buried him. But they they thought about, man, now that dad's dead, we're dead meat. Now Joseph's going to take revenge. Now Joseph's going to get back at us because dad's dead. He's out of the picture. Now, well, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they send messengers. I love this. They don't even go see him in person. They send messengers saying, your father gave this command before he died, say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. This is speculation on my part, but I think they made this all up. I don't think their dad ever said this. I don't think their dad ever told him to do this, but they are so fe- uh, fear- fearful of Joseph that they concoct a lie to say, hey, hey, dad, dad said you had to forgive us. And look at the reaction. Please forgive the transgression of your servants, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. He's like, guys, are you kidding me? After all this time, I've provided for you. I've, I've fed you. I've given you the land of Goshen. You still don't trust me? You still think I'm out to get you? And they fall down before him for the fifth time. And they say, we're your servants. We're your slaves. And he goes, listen, guys, stop fearing. Stop worrying. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today this is the greatest expression of the sovereignty of god in the bible that this young man well he's not a young man anymore he's in his late 30s he say guys you don't understand what you'd meant for evil god meant for good he did it not you egypt was part of his plan and i was part of that plan i will provide for you and your little ones Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. See, this begins the birth of the nation, right? This is what's going to lead us into the book of Exodus. After 93 years, Joseph dies. 93 years living in Egypt. The only time he ever went back to Canaan was to bury his dad, but the story doesn't end with his death because in that place they will prosper. They'll explode, literally explode and again, this is what Exodus opens up with. When Joseph died, all his brothers and all that generation, the people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God's plan is perfect. God knows what he's doing and you can trust him. So here's, here's what I want you to think about as we wrap up this series this morning. When Joseph dies... We know that they're gonna be there for another 300 years. But here's what I want you to discuss. It appears as if God goes silent. There's no more communication that we know of between God and the people of Israel once Joseph dies. What do you think happened to them during those 300 years? We, We know the story, right? But just think about what were they prone to do now that Joseph's out of the picture, the one who heard from God, who spoke on behalf of God, What happened to them over the years as they lived in the land of Egypt? Long before the persecution starts, living in Goshen, famine ends, things are great. We got cattle, we got sheep, we got rich, fertile farmland. What happened to them during that time? It took God four centuries to fulfill his will for the Israelites. Why do we struggle with any delay in our story? It's going to take 400 years for him to deliver them out of Egypt. And we can't wait till tomorrow, right? What what's, what's wrong with us? Why do we do that? And then finally, why does God allow the Egypts in our lives? What's the purpose? What could he be trying to teach us? Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men and in this incredible book. Lord, I've had just a blast studying it and presenting it. And You have shown me so much about me, but more importantly, you've shown me so much about you. You are a great God, you're a faithful God, a sovereign God, you are in control at all times. And Father, I want to not just believe that in my head, I wanna believe it in my heart. I wanna live it daily. I wanna know that there are Egypts that come along and and they're of you, that that Father, you've planned them ahead of time. You, You know exactly what you're doing and I can trust you in the midst of those if I'll just keep my eyes focused on you and your goodness. So Lord, bless this time around the tables as the guys talk, and would you make it rich, make it sweet, and make it apple.